Mexic Clinical Pearls. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Mexic Clinical Pearls. I'm John and I have Minru here with me today. We're final year medical students and we'll be taking through an approach to syncope and collapse, which patients might term a blackout. So firstly, Minru, what is syncope? Thanks for the introduction, John. So syncope refers to global cerebral hypoperfusion. In other words, there is not enough blood getting to the whole brain. Two components are necessary in order to define syncope. First, there needs to be a transient loss of consciousness. And secondly, a loss of postural tone and hence a collapse to the ground. If the event does not involve a loss of consciousness, then it is termed presyncope, representing different degrees of the same disorder. There should be a spontaneous and full recovery for it to be termed syncope. Hence, this excludes patients who present with persistent neurological deficits after a collapse, such as in the setting of a stroke. All right, so now that we have an idea of what syncope is, would you be able to take us through how to think about the causes of syncope? Basically, in thinking about syncope, an approach can be to divide up the causes into cardiac, autostatic, and something called reflex syncope. I'll talk about each in more detail. So starting off first with cardiac syncopes, the Framingham study revealed that cardiac syncopes actually only make up about roughly 10% of all syncopal episodes. However, it is important to stress that cardiac-related syncopes is the most dangerous because patients can be at risk of sudden death if, say, they had an underlying VTAC, critical aortic stenosis, pulmonary embolus, complete heart block, or even a dissection. So to think about these causes logically, I further subdivided them into either structural causes or rhythm causes. Structural causes such as valvular stenosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pulmonary hypertension, or even a large PE can cause the obstruction of blood flow and hence decrease cerebral perfusion. While dysarrhythmias, which includes both tachy and bradyarrhythmias, can also cause syncope because arrhythmias compromise the diastolic filling of the heart, resulting in reduced cardiac output and decreased cerebral perfusion, leading to a syncopal episode. So if the patient's history and age fits the picture of a cardiac-related syncope, then a thorough investigation and workup is necessary. Orthostatic syncopes, on the other hand, means that there's an autonomic dysfunction. So patients tend to faint after standing up because the body cannot compensate for the drop in blood pressure when the blood suddenly moves from the chest to the venous system below the level of the diaphragm. This may occur in the setting of hypovolemia, medical conditions such as diabetes and Parkinson's disease, or in association with drugs that exacerbate autonomic dysfunction, and such drugs include antihypertensive, Parkinson's medication, and antipsychotics. Finally, reflex syncopes refers to a reflex response such as vasodilatation or bradycardia that leads to a transient loss of consciousness. There are three causes of reflex syncopes, vasovagal, situational syncopes, and carotid hypersensitivity. I will talk about each of them, but the pathophysiology behind each of these causes are similar in that the parasympathetic response goes into an overdrive, vasodilatation occurs, and there is a transient reduction in venous return to the right atrium, leading to cerebral hypoperfusion. So in the cluster of reflex syncopes, the classic vasovagal occurs when a person faints, secondary to situations such as prolonged standing, heat, pain, or emotions. 
Situational syncopes, on the other hand, is brought on by specific actions such as coughing, sneezing, swallowing, urination, or defecation. All of these actions produce a Valsalva effect that results in a parasympathetic response. Lastly, Keratid hypersensitivity refers to a situation where stimulation of the keratid baroreceptors in the neck leads to a much greater than expected fall in both heart rate and blood pressure. This may occur particularly in older individuals with arteriosclerotic vessels, and the action of massaging the keratid vessels in the neck or turning one's head can result in an over-inhibition of the sympathetic tone to the heart and the blood vessels. So again, causing vasodilatation, resulting in cerebral hypoperfusion. Okay, so that was a lot of information. To summarize, you should divide syncopal causes into cardiac, orthostatic, and reflex syncope. Cardiac syncope means that there may be a structural underlying cause that's obstructing blood flow, such as aortic stenosis, pulmonary embolism, Hockham, while rhythm disturbances may impair the diastolic filling and decrease the cardiac output of the heart. Orthostatic causes are often due to hypovolemia, but can also be due to medications or conditions such as Parkinson's and diabetes. While reflex syncopes refers to any of the following, vasovagal, situational syncope, or keratid hypersensitivity. Great, thanks Minri. Do note that syncope can be the presenting complaint for various life-threatening conditions like subarachnoid hemorrhage, aortic dissection, acute coronary syndrome, and pulmonary uh, embolism. Uh, but by far, the most common cause of syncope is still a vasovagal episode. And of course, besides thinking about the causes of syncope, we also need to be considering non-syncopal causes or transient loss of consciousness. In other words, loss of consciousness not due to global cerebral hypoperfusion. And the most common cause of these uh, is a seizure. But we also want to be thinking about hypoglycemia, hypoxia, intoxication, and things like transient ischemic attacks, so TIAs. And something to note about TIAs is that uh, usually posterior circulation TIAs can cause loss of consciousness, while anterior circulation TIAs don't. So there are also a few disorders that can resemble syncope but don't actually present with a loss of consciousness. And these include uh, psychogenic pseudosyncope, uh, cataplexy, and drop attacks. These are generally quite rare, so I'll touch on them just very briefly. Psychogenic pseudosyncope can be considered a type of conversion disorder, which is a psychiatric condition. There is no actual loss of consciousness, but it can appear similar to syncope, and it occurs in response to psychological stresses and may be associated with non-epileptic seizures or pseudo-seizures. Cataplexy, on the other hand, is when the body loses its muscle tone due to strong emotions like fear or even from laughter, while drop attacks basically describes a sudden fall for a variety of reasons, ranging from vestibular causes to musculoskeletal instability, but in a situation where there was no loss of consciousness. Alright, so now that we have a scaffolding framework of all the different causes of transient loss of consciousness, uh, we need to be able to synthesize it so that we can do a cogent history and examination. And usually when a patient presents, they have already gained full consciousness. Uh, so the first step, as with everything in assessing a patient, is to take a good history. 
In these cases, an eyewitness account, if available, can be really important as part of a careful history taking. So when we approach the history, I like to divide it into before, during, and after the episode. So prior to the episode, the things I ask the patient is if they actually felt unwell at all. And so this includes having nausea or vomiting and dizziness. And when patients present with this, we'll probably be thinking about a vasovagal episode rather than other causes. But we also want to ask about any chest pain and palpitations where we would be considering cardiogenic causes. And we also want to ask about any trauma. And besides these things, we also want to think about the position that the patient was in, whether they were lying or sitting or standing, and what activity they were doing. So did they stand quickly and they had the vasovagal, or were they uh, in the bathroom uh, post-micturation or defecating? Were they coughing, swallowing, or was it some sort of painful stimulus? And so these all give us clues as to what type of syncope the patient has experienced. And then I want to ask questions about what actually happened during the episode. So they might not know, but witnesses will be very important for this part. So asking how long they had the loss of consciousness for, if the witnesses noticed any convulsive movements. And then after the episode, uh, we want to ask about whether the patient had a decreased conscious state, uh, whether they were quite confused and drowsy afterwards, where we would consider if this patient had a seizure or if this patient uh, was uh, had some sort of head injury. And we also want to ask, thinking about seizures, uh, incontinence, any, any tongue biting. So the classic one to ask is just any blood in the mouth. And we also want to ask about uh, any dyspnea, where we would be thinking about cardiac causes, and any focal neurological weakness, where we would be thinking about that TIA. And besides these things, uh, where we try and figure out what's actually going on, we also want to ask about any injuries that the patient has sustained. Particularly, if there's head or neck injury, then we'll need to uh, put the patient in cervical immobilization. So this is quite a thorough history as to before, during, and after the actual episode. And then we want to ask just the general past medical history. In particular, what we're concerned about uh, is if they've ever had a history and having no syncopal episodes in the past is non-reassuring. And we also want to ask specifically if they have any structural heart disease or any ischemic heart disease, because this predisposes the patient to having quite life-threatening arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia. And then we want to ask what medications they're on. And so in general, the main culprits of syncope to be thinking about are cardiac drugs like antihypertensives, diuretics, antiarrhythmics, and also psychiatric drugs like antidepressants and antipsychotics, and also Parkinson drugs like levodopa. And we also want to think about non-syncopal causes. So if the patient's on any diabetic drugs like insulin or sulfonylurea, where there's an increased risk of hypoglycemia, and we also want to check if the patient is on any anticoagulants because there might be some sort of bleeding that's occurred because of the fall. And so putting all of these things together, if a patient had a cardiogenic cause of syncope, this is called a Stokes-Adams attack, and we might expect on the history 
some sort of sudden collapse without warning or syncope while they're lying down in bed and they're not actually standing up or sitting or syncope on exertion or if they actually had palpitations beforehand. And so these will all give you clues as to a cardiogenic cause of syncope where we would be more concerned. If we're thinking about orthostatic causes, this is quite typical. They get syncope when they stand up. And when we think about a vasovagal episode, this usually in the history has something to do with some sort of emotion or painful stimulus, and they feel nauseous and sweaty and lightheaded beforehand. And in patients that have situational syncope, well, there's usually a situation that they're in when they actually have the syncopal episode. So whether that's coughing or urinating or defecating. So now we move on to the examination and the main things are checking the vital signs, especially checking if they're in sinus rhythm uh, and you might see hypertension or tachycardia. And if possible, you also want to try and get a postural blood pressure. We also want to check the patient's volume status if they're dehydrated, we would want to give them a fluid bolus. If they're fluid overloaded, we'll be thinking about congestive heart failure, for example, which has an increased morbidity. And then we also want to listen to their heart for any murmurs, particularly an ejection systolic murmur, where we'll be thinking about aortic stenosis or in a younger population, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And we also want to check for injuries, as we talked about before, especially head and neck injury. Just check for any lacerations, any fractures and bruises, which you might need to do extra x-rays for. And if you're suspecting it like a TIA or a stroke, you can do a brief neurological examination, but it's not really indicated for all patients. And so this is a general approach to the history and examination for a patient that has had a syncopal episode. Even after a detailed history and examination, the cause of syncope can be undiagnosed in half to a third of patients, and this is referred to syncope of unknown origin. But with these patients, we would look into using diagnostic investigations to confirm a suspected diagnosis or give us some extra clues as to potential causes. And there's a broad range of tests that we can do, but we often just rely on the patient's history to guide our choice of investigations. Something to know, however, is that for every patient that comes in with syncope, you always want to check the blood sugar level and do an ECG. It's just so quickly done, so cheap, risk-free, and you can actually pick up some life-threatening causes of syncope right there and then. So with the blood glucose, it normally lies around 4 to 10 millimoles per litre, and you can just measure that with a bedside glucometer or a hypercount machine to rule out hypoglycemia. And with the ECG, it can identify significant abnormalities in around 5% of patients. Perhaps the caveat to the ECG is that if a patient is uh, really young and healthy and it's very obviously a vasovagal syncope, then you can consider not doing an ECG. But most places uh, would recommend you doing an ECG just to rule out any cardiogenic causes of syncope. If you're particularly worried based on the history 
or examination for cardiogenic syncope, then you can also do an echocardiogram. And this will show you any valvular abnormalities, any sort of ventricular dysfunction or ventricular hypertrophy. Now, other investigations are ordered on clinical suspicion. So some of the things that you might consider doing would be an FBE if you think that the patient is bleeding or if they have anemia. You might also consider doing UEC if you think that there's something metabolic going on and also troponins um, if you think that the patient is currently having an acute coronary syndrome. And sometimes you can consider doing a CT brain if you think that the patient has, for example, a subarachnoid hemorrhage or if you, you think that the patient is having a stroke. But this is a pretty uncommon cause of syncope, and you would probably do CT brains more commonly in patients who have had head injury because of their syncopal episode. So to summarise, if a patient presents with history of collapse, you'd first want to do a focus history and examination, specifically thinking about the cause of the collapse, whether this is the syncopal or non-syncopal episode, and whether or not there were any injuries sustained. Remember to think about cardiogenic, orthostatic and reflex syncope, and also rule out seizures, hypoglycemia, stroke and trauma. You want to do a BSL and an ECG whenever you see these kinds of patients, and consider other investigations based on your clinical assessment. So this is the end of our podcast on an approach to collapse. Please let us know if you'd like us to cover anything else for future podcasts. Thank you for listening and take care.